All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Sunday School as we uh, continue our study on apologetics. We have uh, had an intro to apologetics at this time where we had uh, looked at how our brains work. We looked at the uh, various methods that people have used. Then we uh, looked at scripture and found a good method. And uh, we explained that method to you. And then we uh, went through what's called personal apologetics. We talked about how an apologetical method can help you in your uh, faith. Um, and today we want to talk about what I want to call foundational or foundations of apologetics. In which we are looking at the... the um, at Scripture itself, <clears throat> and asking ourselves a tough question because we lay, in our method that we have laid out, we lay a lot on the uh, responsibility of Scripture. And because we lay so much on Scripture, or rely so much on it, uh, a question can come that might, uh, that, that we have to answer, and that is, how can you trust the Bible? And our answer, of course, is because the Bible says so, <laughs> which may not be very satisfying to other people. And so we need to explain how that all works, since Scripture is going, uh, which we're trying to show is Scripture is our foundation for our apologetic. So let's open with a word of prayer, and then we will get going. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you that we have this time to uh, think about your word, think about how we are to give an answer, whether it be to an unbeliever or to a believer with doubts or to our own doubts. And Lord, we pray that you will give us clarity of thought this morning. Uh, we ask for the work of your Holy Spirit as we interpret your word that you would give us understanding, Lord, and that we would not rely on our own understanding, but rely on the work of the Holy Spirit. And we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> Does everyone, uh, well, let me rephrase that. Does anyone remember the two-step process of our apologetical method that we have been talking about so far, that we have, we have called it uh, covenantal apologetics, otherwise known as presuppositionalism, but that's kind of an old phrase, no one knows what that means. Uh, so remember the two-step process? Two steps, just two, it's not a lot to remember, Sandy. Yes. Yep. Yes. That's very good. Okay, so Sandy says, we show them the logical end of their own position, which uh, will always end in absurdity. And then we show them the hope of our position in Scripture. Now, all of this 
relies on what we talked about a few weeks ago on the fact that Scripture tells us that God has implanted knowledge of him in everyone. And that this knowledge can be understood just by looking around creation. We know that there is the God. We even know his attributes and his divinity. We know all these things about the one true God just by looking around because God has made it clear to us. He has done the work. He revealed it to us. And we know this because of Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 21. Now, we are relying at the very core of our position, we are relying on Scripture. So the next question that an unbeliever or even a believer might ask is, so how can you know if the Bible is true? What uh, do you rely on to know that you can rely on the Bible? Um, I put a little uh, question there. How can the Bible be the foundation of human knowledge? In other words, uh, probably most of us grew up with a very secular view of thinking. Um, I'm not questioning you know, your, your upbringing. I'm not saying you... You're bad people. I'm just saying most of us grew up with a very secular view. So we kind of grew up with the idea that everyone has these thoughts in their head. And we have experience in the world. And that's how we get to really know something. Through experience, through wisdom, through uh, what we do in our lives. And then we figure things out because of logical deductions that we make in our mind. And then we are introduced to religion. And God uh, tells us things in the Bible, and we then add God to that. Does that make sense? And so now God is an addition to our uh, understanding of the world through our experiences and our logic. And sometimes we get, um, I don't know how to put it, we get confused because sometimes God doesn't fit our logic, or our experience. Let me give you an example. Uh, the women are going through uh, Proverbs. Okay? And uh, typically, and I grew up this way, uh, Proverbs was looked at as a very special book. It's a very special book because there's parts of Proverbs that are true all the time and parts of Proverbs that are true only sometimes. And you're supposed to accept that idea because Proverbs is a special genre. It's a genre. And it's called Proverbs. <laughs> the, the genre of Proverbs. And Proverbs, as we know, we learned it uh, from the Chinese, that sometimes they're true as you apply it to certain parts of your life. And sometimes it doesn't apply. It just kind of depends. And that's kind of how we've understood Proverbs. And so then we apply that to the Bible. And so we come across a verse that says something like, um, you know, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And what's our first thought? Well, that one can't always be true because the Johnsons, you know, brought up their kid and they walked away from the face. We know that's not true. You understand what I'm saying? So we automatically go to our experiences, right? But when it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, well, that's true all the time. Well, what's the difference? The difference is, we have now used our experiences to tell us whether or not something is 
uh, applicable in Scripture, right? Instead of letting the Bible uh, compare itself to itself. So, this is kind of how we've been brought up. So when we are introduced to a different way of thinking, it does take a lot of adjustment because what we're, what we're saying is you don't have this reality that you have, that you have constructed from your experiences and your logic, and then we need to add God to it. What we find is we have to wake up and realize that we have been trying to negotiate reality in a really limited way, and God has provided us true reality. And this is where it all comes from. All of our knowledge is made possible because God has spoken. Now, I want to try and prove that to you today. So, so this will be uh, interesting. I have limited time to do this, so let's try it. Um, <clears throat> there was this guy in philosophy named Immanuel Kant. And Immanuel Kant was probably the most helpful and most damaging philosopher in history to Christians. He's the most helpful because he asked one of the greatest questions in philosophy. He's the most hurtful or damaging to Christianity because he answered it terribly and Christians believed him. Now, most Christians will have no idea who Immanuel Kant is, but when you look at their theology, it's almost identical. This is what happened. This guy named Immanuel Kant. What was that? Yeah. Yeah, he's a great philosopher. Um, yeah, you just kind of cut God out of it. And he, he can think, you know, he can think. He, logic is... Not pure reason, of course. It's an inside joke between us. Uh, but, uh, all right, thank you, thank you. Okay, so yeah, he was a good thinker, but the way he answered that question was terrible. What was the question? The question was this. Everyone has been saying, how is it that people think? And they were asking, well, people think this way, and people think that way. And everyone was asking how people think, and Immanuel Kant was a, really the first person to really explore the question, what makes thinking possible? Not how is it that someone thinks, but what are the conditions needed so that thinking is even uh, happening at all? Isn't that a good question? Well, it's very early. Okay, you'll see it's a good question. Those, those looks of boredom, I'm sure, really are looks of, of great thought going on. All right. So, here are the conditions needed. Um, I have a little list for you. Four conditions. These are main conditions needed for thought to be possible. We're talking about human thought here, okay? Human thought, um, and that, that is a, as opposed to like angelic thought or God's thoughts. Uh, this is human thought. Uh, number one, you have to have context. So that's your first your first uh, blank there is context. Context is absolutely necessary for any kind of what we call proposition or sentence or thought to have any kind of meaning whatsoever. There has to be a context. 
And I have there, in parentheses, story, because God created us in such a way that we are smack dab in the middle of a story. It's how we understand anything. You will find that most of your science courses, if your teacher is worth his or her salt, uh, most of the time they're telling you stories of how it is possible something has come about. The cell has a story, right? Origins of life have a story. Uh, to understand even very specific things that seem like wouldn't have a story behind it has to have a story for us to make sense of it. A beginning, a middle, and an end type idea. Number two, you need to have objective truth, what we call a reference point. You can have all the context you want, but once uh, knowledge or data is introduced to you, you have to know whether it's true or false. Otherwise, it's meaningless data. Does that make sense? That's why even after all the questioning of absolute truth that's out there, no one really talks as if there isn't truth. All those professors that have tried to convince their students that there's no real truth out there, you watch them protest against conservatives. They look pretty serious about truth at that point, right? They're pretty convinced there's something true going on. You tell them that transgenderism is a sin, and boy, I'll tell you what, they really believe there's truth at that point. You can see it in the veins crawling up their neck. Does that make sense? <laughs> you all look very serious today. And that's fine. Nothing wrong with seriousness. All right. So <clears throat> a reference point is absolutely uh, necessary for there to be any kind of knowledge, human knowledge particularly. Um, now, you will see, um, well, let's just keep going. What else do we need? we need? We need data, or number three, content. There has to be content, right? There has to be something, some kind of proposition, some kind of sentence given to you uh, so that you can judge it against a reference point, whether it's true or false, and contextualize it so you understand what, what's even being said, right? So data is important. Content. And number four, it has to be organized. Uh, it's logic. All logic does is organize things. Yes? Mm-hmm. Okay.
Yes. Okay. For those tuning in, and this is the tricky part about being a Sunday school teacher, you have to interpret uh, Bob's questions to the rest of the world. So, so Bob is asking, is this list just Immanuel Kant's list, and I'm going to trick you into saying, this is all foolishness, walk away from it, or is this a good list? <laughs> all right. So Bob agrees. Yes. So what I'm trying to show you is, this is what the question is bringing around. The question of how is knowledge possible brings this list. And I want to show you that this list is, is true. Um, some of it is kind of where Kant was going, but really what we're going to find is that this is a list that, that we can easily uh, find in Scripture. Now, the way Immanuel Kant answered it was ab abominable. It was terrible. Uh, but, you know, he wasn't a Christian. Uh, he might have called himself one, maybe. But who doesn't? Nowadays. Okay, so. Um, okay, so now let's talk about the brackets. You'll notice on your handout there are these little brackets. Okay, this is not, uh, this has nothing to do with March Madness. For those of you that might have thought so. Because uh, it is March, right? Um, okay. So, content, or I'm sorry, context, the story, the thing that makes any kind of data have any meaning at all, is absolutely foundational to, to thought, to having any kind of knowledge. And so is objective truth, having a reference point. Those two things, what your bracket is pointing at, you want to say foundational. You just write foundational in there. You've got to have those things. Okay. If you have those two things, then any kind of data and any kind of logic that you use to organize that data will then be useful okay, and meaningful. You'll know whether it's true or false. You'll know how to understand it because you'll have your logic. And so data and organizing, or the content and the logic, that varies. There's different ways of using logic. There's different kinds of content that you get. Right? You can get super, super trivial content. You can be sitting there watching SpongeBob SquarePants and watching it, and you s data is coming at you. Okay? It's useless data, <laughs> but it's coming at you. Right? It can be as useless as that, or you can be sitting in a secular uh, college classroom. And the professor is giving you information, 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 pretending that it's neutral, and you're discovering it is not neutral information, but rather there is an angle here, and you're able to organize it and understand it through uh, looking at the content and, and, and the logic. And it's different things that are coming at you, but how do you know if it's true or false? You need that foundational part. How do you know how to make meaning out of it? You have a story. Does that make sense? Okay, so we're gonna get to, we're gonna get to that. So Nathan keeps trying to jump ahead, and that is not allowed. I'm not even gonna interpret that for our viewers. So, no, that's good. You're already trying to think of examples, and that's that's wonderful. But for the rest of the class, 
We have to slow down. All right. So, what I want to show you is that Scripture provides the foundational part that makes thinking possible. It provides us with the story so that the data that we get from the world has meaning, and we can make meaning out of it because Scripture has given us the story that contextualizes everything that we hear and, and say. We have a reference point from Scripture so that we know whether things are true or false, right or wrong. Those are foundational things. Everything else varies, right? So you have something foundational. It becomes, if I can put it this way, here you have your glasses that make sense of the world. <laughs> if you don't have them on, things don't make sense too much, well, at least from my perspective. Once I put them on, I can get all kinds of varied data out there, and my glasses help, them, help me make sense out of what I'm seeing. That's what Scripture does. That's how Calvin describes Scripture, as the spectacles that we put on to look at the world. Does that make sense? So I want to show this because what I hear from different apologetical books, namely one that even has the word reformed in it, which makes me shudder a little, there's a, there's a book out there called, uh, what is it, Reformed Apologetics? Uh, by a guy uh, that, um, he's a history guy, but he decided to write an apologetical book. Anyway, my point is this. Uh, he says that, well, you know, the Bible's not, you know, doesn't talk about cells and doesn't talk about, it's not a science textbook, so it doesn't give us all the knowledge we need. Well, I think he, he completely misses, misunderstands everything about what the Bible is. The Bible is the foundational spectacles that makes everything else possible, that makes thought about anything else possible. Otherwise, without it, you have to have a completely different reference point and a completely different story. So let me illustrate this for you. As we go down, it says Scripture, God's speech. Now this is important because with, uh, as you look out into the world, what we call general revelation, God's creation, God's creation from Genesis chapter 1 always accompanied God's speech. So when Adam was created, he's looking around and he can see just by looking around creation that there is the God. He knows the attributes of the God and he's convinced of all these things. But it's also accompanied by God's speech who says, see that tree over there? Don't touch it. You don't eat that tree. All the rest of the trees you can eat. And he immediately is coming into uh, covenant relation with Adam right away. He says, it's not good that you're alone. I'm going to make someone for you. This is all speech accompanying creation. What we see as general revelation. Even let there be light. I mean, it is interesting to me that in Genesis chapter 1, God, it, it does not say that God just made light appear. It doesn't say he thought of light and it appeared. He spoke it. So God's speech 
is to always accompany this general revelation, this creation we see. Because without God's speech, is it possible to bring yourself to salvation just by looking around knowing that you know the true God because you see all the stuff around you think, well, there must be a God. I can understand his attributes. I know that he's almighty. I need to get saved. Is that, is that possible? No. Especially if you come from the worldview of being reformed. Now, if you're a, a liberal Catholic and you believe in a guy named Karl Rahner, you might believe in uh, the radio wave salvation where God just puts his radio waves out there and you have these anonymous Christians who just look around and go, wow, look at this, all this. Uh, I just believe, and then they get saved. Well, that's not what we believe, right? Because that's not what Scripture teaches. I think Rahner probably got some good, you know, I'm sure his liberal friends liked him for that, but uh, it's not biblical, right? Um, you need God's speech to say, like he said to Adam, don't eat of that tree, we need to hear, you are a sinner, you need my son. We need his speech. So if you turn with me to 1 Timothy, how are we doing on time? Not good. All right, we will go faster. It's a story of my life. I just, it's probably just pride as keep hearing myself speak. I need to learn how to shut up more. All right. Okay. Did I say 1 Timothy? I apologize. 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. If you notice in the New Testament, look at all the three sixteens. They're all pretty important. It's kind of interesting. Uh, it's probably just a coincidence, but still. Um, it says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Equipped for every good work. What is a good work? It is everything that brings God glory. And what does scripture say about what we do to give God glory? Is it most things, a lot of things, only important things, or are we to do all things for the glory of God? All things. So that means God's speech where it says, all scripture is inspired. This word, um, um, sometimes the Greek is helpful. It is in this case just because it's a weird Greek word. It's theopanoustos. It means God's breath or God breathed. It's kind of a um, noun verb mix. Um, It means God's uh, expiring uh, with his breath. What it does not mean is God's all scripture is inspiring. Does that make sense? This is where the liberal theology has tried to twist this 
in the Greek to try and say, no, this doesn't mean that this is God's actual breath. This is saying that God's word is inspiring to people. So when you read it, you're inspired. And they turn the verb. Okay. What's really this is, this is saying, and this is the, from uh, the very early uh, reformers and even before that, understood this to, to mean this is God's breath, his speech to us, all scripture. It's not saying that all scripture is inspiring to us. It's saying that this is God's expiration, his breathing out of his word. Now that's important because this gives us our what? Our reference point. If all of scripture is God's breath to us, we have a reference point of absolute truth. That is hugely important. You take away inspiration. You take away that this is God's breath. And you say it's the best humans could do to describe what was going on at the time. And some of it, some of it is good, you know, some of it's accurate, some of it's not accurate. Uh, throw the whole thing away. Because now whatever standard you use to decide which parts are right and which parts are wrong should be your Bible. Um, and beware of those that say, well, there are some parts that are inspired and some parts that are not. They're just as poisonous because now they get to decide what parts are inspired. And guess what? It probably won't be the parts that condemns homosexuality, I bet. <laughs> that part won't be inspired. Uh, my wife and I were in Philadelphia when I was at Westminster. And we w went down to downtown Philly. And we went into that, uh, that Quaker temple whatever they call it, uh, it's uh, satanic, whatever it is. And so we go in there, and uh, there's this guy giving a tour to these two older ladies who obviously were retired professors at some liberal school somewhere. And they were saying, now, what is this about? Now, now you guys believe in the Bible, right? And he goes, well, yes. And, and <laughs> the well part was quite pregnant. Uh, but he goes... He goes, you know, well, yes. And she goes, but, you know, Paul said that women are to be quiet in the church. Don't, do you have women stand up? Because Quakers, they just sit around and meditate and then someone stands up and tells everybody something that they were thinking about. Not the most. Anyway. So she was wondering if women could stand up at the Quaker, you know, temple or whatever. And the guy goes, oh, of course women can stand up and speak. You know, Paul, he was very sexist. He says, we don't think that part was, uh, you know, part of scripture. You remember that, honey? Oh, I was, I was, I was ticked. <laughs> and I just, I thought, should I start a fight? You know, I, I'm in, I'm in, I was in seminary at the time, so I had all knowledge and all understanding. <laughs> so I could have just schooled everyone, you know. And if, <laughs> and if you didn't believe me, just look at my social media. I would let everyone know just how intelligent I was. So, so anyway, uh, this is, this is the, the great evil that has come over. I mean, they have to discredit all Scripture. They have to discredit the inspiration because this is the reference point of all truth for human knowledge.
And again, if you have a reference point, that's one of the foundations, right? Uh, turn with me to Luke 24. I work with uh, Christian textbooks, and we make Bible textbooks, uh, textbooks uh, for kids to understand Scripture. What we find is a lot of kids find the Bible overwhelming, if you can believe that. I don't know why. <laughs> Seems pretty easy to me. Eh? <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's terribly overwhelming. I mean, you got... Everything seems to make sense at the beginning, but then you get into these weird stories, and you hit judges, and you're like, what's that about? And then you get into poetry, and uh, Job seems kind of like a play, and that's kind of weird. And then, then you jump over all these histories, and you got prophecies, and then you get in the New Testament, that seems okay, but then you got you know, three versions of the same story, and what do you do with that? Then you have epistles, and then you know, Revelation, don't get me started, right? Revelation. Um, it can be overwhelming, but what's, what helps us with that um, right? Uh, how many of you have puzzles? How many of you puzzle people? My wife is a puzzle person. Anybody else want to admit to it? I see those hands. I see those hands. See? I could give an invitation. Um, yeah, puzzles are, are depressing to me because when they pour it all out on the table, it just looks, you just think, there goes part of my life. I'll never get it back. So many pieces, so much time involved. The only thing that helps you, right, is looking back at the picture, right? You go, oh, okay, well, the blue parts are going to be at the top because that's the sky, and then there's a, there's a barn in the middle, so all the red parts go in the middle, and there's green grass, so that goes, green goes at the bottom. And so you start getting your hands around it, right? It becomes less depressing <laughs> because, because you're starting to get that, that model, right? You have the model. Well, Scripture models itself, right? It has a lot of component parts, but it's all pointing to the one thing. And what's the one thing? Jesus lays it out for us in Luke 24. Luke 24, starting at verse 44. Um, it's, it's the end of Luke's, uh, Luke's account of Christ. He's summing it all up for us. This is Christ speaking. Now he said to them, These are my words which I, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things, all things which are written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms, what he's doing is he's, it's a poetical way of speaking in what we call schenectache. You have these parts that actually represent the whole. Basically what he's saying is the whole of the Old Testament was written about whom? Jesus. That's right. He is the centerpiece of the Old Testament. And we're pretty sure he's the centerpiece of the New Testament, right? I mean, I don't think we're going to argue about that. And who is he? He's the Redeemer. So redemption is this huge picture we have. But what, what brought about redemption? Well, creation, right? God decided to create. We don't know why. He was perfect in his triunity, perfect in their fellowship, perfect in their love. They had no need of something that would be created that would never be able to love them as perfectly as they could love each other. 
but creation came. And we fell. And that was the need of redemption. So you have this picture all through scripture of creation, fall, redemption. And every story points at the redemption of Christ. And we see these, this big narrative story that we can use to understand everything else. We have that story so that every piece of data that comes into our head is made sense by that story. Think of the story other people have. People that have grown up without the Lord, that go to the secular uh, schools, where they are told, this is your story. There was a massive explosion. Now, it sounds crazy to think that something came from nothing, so now we know, of course, that our part of the universe is just a small part of a much bigger universe that no one can see or ever will be able to see, so don't bother looking. But that, that bigger universe had materials that was able, through uh, quantum mechanics, of course, uh, to bring about an explosion where we, you know, where we are, and everything started moving apart. And it just so happened, as you know, explosions do, one of the rocks happens to be just far enough from a star that it warmed it just right. And the, uh, and the rock, of course, because of the explosion, was spinning. And it spun just fast enough that it didn't get too hot for too long on one side, right? As opposed to like Mars that faces the sun the whole time. That would be crazy. You wouldn't be able to live on that. But this one spins, and that's great. And now... Uh, some atmosphere happened because of that, and uh, there happened to be on the back of some kind of meteor uh, some, some uh, proteins, of course, as you would expect, uh, that hit the earth and got into some water, and those proteins mixed long enough to grow tails and then jump out of the water in life, as you would expect. <laughs> so... That's your story. You don't really have purpose. In fact, we kind of get in the way because we have caused our earth a lot of problems. And really the earth would probably be better off without humans because we are the problem. So not only do you not really have a, a purpose in life, but you're kind of in the way of actual life that's kind of more important than us, like the earth. So... You have to invent a purpose for yourself. You might find purpose in your identity. Maybe you're upset with your identity and you'd rather have a different identity, and so you switch your identity uh, to a different maybe gender or whatever, and that gives you purpose. And if someone tries to take away your purpose, they're taking away literally the only thing you got because your story is that you really don't even, I mean, you're an accident. You're a, you came. You're here. That's it. There's no real purpose. So you have invented purpose that now other people are trying to take away from you, and you've got to fight for that purpose. Do you understand how this all works in our society now? Why they're so angry at anyone that tries to mess with their identity. This is the only thing they've got, this invented purpose. That's their story. This is how they make sense of anything is this story. This is how they make sense of your religion, 
You're someone that's, that's here on accident just like they are, that when you die, nothing really happens at all, but you need to comfort yourself with your own little purpose. And now your little purpose is starting to invade my purpose. And you need to be stopped. You keep your little purpose to yourself. Don't try and evangelize me. Do we see how the unbeliever works? They need their story to make sense of the world. You need your story to make sense of the world, and by God's grace, he's given you the, the one that's true. right? From his word, from his very breath. And in your blanks there, you have creation, fall, redemption as our story throughout scripture that tells us this is our story. You have a savior that has redeemed a world he created. And in the end, he will redeem the very fabric of the world. Right? Where a new heavens and a new earth he brings about to redeem the very world he has created. Not just his people, but also the world. And in John 17, 17, as we look down uh, below there, Scripture establishes the reference point for all knowledge. Knowledge begins, according to Proverbs 1, 7, Knowledge begins with the fear of the Lord. That's where it begins. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If there's no fear of the Lord, there's no knowledge. The Lord is the reference point, and being submissive to him is how your knowledge begins. Now, what is the content? John 17, 17. Right? Let me read that to you very quickly. It's right after Luke. John 17, 17 says this. Uh, da, 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 there we are. Uh, they are, uh, where, uh, sorry, uh, sanctify them. This is Christ speaking of his, of his disciples, praying to the Father. Sanctify them, make them pure is what he's saying. Make them holy in the truth. This is Christ speaking of the Father. Your word is truth, right? He's not saying your word is truthful, that it contains truth. You just have to find where it is. He's saying your word is truth. You have the God of truth that speaks and we have the reference point. So what you have on your last blank there is God's speech is the reference point of all truth, what we might call knowledge. In 1 Corinthians, if we were to keep reading down the line here, 1 Corinthians 1, we are given a contrast between the world's knowledge, if you want to call it that, and truth, our knowledge, knowledge through Christ. Uh, verse 9, and maybe some of you have read this before. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, uh... Yep, sorry. If you just scratch out the one and put two, 1 Corinthians 2, that would be great. All right, just as written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and that which 
uh, have not entered in the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak Not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. What we find is that through Scripture, through God's speech, the Holy Spirit reveals things to us that remain blind to the world. And so we have the foundation the conditions for real knowledge. We have the real reference point of all truth that's found in God's word. And we have the storyline, the meta narrative that gives us all meaning through any kind of knowledge or any kind of uh, data that's sent our way. We have that way of understanding through the story that we have been given through scripture. So no. The Bible doesn't go into details about the components of a cell. The Bible provides us with the foundational story and the foundation of truth to make the understanding and study of a cell even possible for us. Does that make sense? It makes knowledge possible. And that's why we can rely on Scripture. That's the kind of confidence we can have in Scripture because through it we are given given the wisdom of the Spirit who searches the mind of God and reveals it to us because we have the mind of Christ because we are in union with him. And that's the kind of confidence we can have in Scripture when someone says, why do you believe in Scripture? And we say, well, because Scripture says it's true That's not circular reasoning. It is the work of the Holy Spirit through God's speech. It is our authority. All right. I am out of time. Yep. So let's pray. Again, if you have any questions, please see me. I have answers maybe. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit and the graciousness that you have, uh, you have bestowed upon us through the work of the Holy Spirit, that we might know your word and know your speech, that we might understand the world around us. And Lord, we pray even as we enter into worship today, that the work of the Holy Spirit might uh, be done in our hearts that as your word is spoken to us through your servant, our pastor, that we would humble our hearts before his, what he has prepared for us, that we might be able to tune into the Spirit, and the Spirit might work on our hearts, 
break them so that we might change even today because of what you have given us. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.